0: The following is a Just Green production brought to you by the Might Be News Network.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Might Be Brews, episode 69. The podcast where we explore the people, places, and brews of the craft beer world. My name is John. With me as always, Mr. Steve. How you doing tonight?
0: Today's Wordle is beers.
1: Beers. <laughs> I like the Wordle. Yeah, I, I tried to make fun of you about the Wordle, and I'm all in. And I'm trying to recruit other people.
0: You're getting on it. You're getting I'm in on there. it.
1: So, uh, guys, listen... If uh, Might Be Bruce has officially started our own podcast feed, so uh, if you're watching, please find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Uh, We've made it really easy for you. Find our new website, mightbebruce.podbean.com and help us out with the algorithms find the show press play please subscribe rate and share and uh if you're listening make sure you go find us on social media so you can watch us live as well we've got a very special guest with us uh Jerry from Bottle Condition Film Jerry how you doing today I'm
2: Doing great guys glad to be with you Yeah
1: thank you so much I'm really excited about this and I think I have to give my first shout out to Devin because I think he he was the one that turned me on to your film and Devin nice. was going to be with us, but he's got a new baby and, you know, COVID's crazy right now. But he, he's the one that turned me on to it and the reason that uh, I tried to get in on that bottle raffle and things like that. And, uh, so, but I watched the trailer and was like, holy crap, this looks really cool. Thanks. So thanks. if anybody well, thanks, doesn't know, thanks I'm going
2: to
1: seven for that. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. So if anybody doesn't know what I want to kind of uh, lay the groundwork for is, um, you're, you're, I'm, I'm assuming a, you're a filmmaker, we'll, we'll call it that. Right. And you are making a film about bottle conditioned beers. So, um, why don't you tell us, you know, maybe just very generally what you are working on?
2: so the film is called bottle conditioned and um it's actually specifically a movie about three different producers in the lambic world in belgium um and it it started one way and it and it obviously like after all these years working on it like it it always things change and like the movie you were thinking you were gonna make in the beginning turns out to be something else as time goes on so it became this huge project and now we're finally getting close to being done so uh very very excited about that it's been it's been like almost a four year or five year journey but holy cow from the the time i started doing the research and uh yeah filming we started three years ago
1: okay Well, I've got a ton, a ton of questions, but the first thing we always do when we have a new guest is we kind of have to find out what your craft beer history is. Can you do a, uh, or try to think back about maybe that first beer that you had that wasn't, you know, a Bud Light or some kind of like just regular light beer that really, uh, changed your mind about how you feel about beer.
2: Well, having grown up in, uh, <clears throat> in Europe, um, in Luxembourg, more specifically, which is a small country right next to Belgium, um, I kind of was always like in touch with like some Belgian beers, like like Ho Garden, for example, which is a very common uh, wheat beer. Uh, but then also like Guinness, you know, uh, from Ireland. So so I don't consider those craft beers, but I didn't necessarily like grow up drinking Budweiser or anything like that. I I, I drank more of like the Local beers in Luxembourg, which which were at that point not owned by AB InBev yet, um, <laughs> but now they are unfortunately yeah, like everything. Right. <laughs> so then, when I moved to the states about like 15 years ago or so, um, I really the really first like craft brew that I got into was Fat Tire. Cause you okay. could get it everywhere. You could get it at all the chain restaurants, like Chili's and stuff like that. They would have it on tap. And I thought it was like the strongest thing ever. And it was amazing <laughs> and mal- malty and all that. And then, you know, it goes into the IPAs, like, you know, having lived in California all this time, uh, you know, Pliny obviously was like the big hyped IPA still, still like all, all the way back then. And, uh, yeah it's just it just grows and then you grow into stouts and and sours and uh it took me a while to discover lambic actually Mm -hmm. it's uh i did a lot of like all of the american brews and then like i slowly ventured back into like the european beers that a lot of the american breweries are influenced by i think and uh yeah then i somehow found found out about lambic and uh yeah, I was like, what the
1: hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I don't know that we've had a guest that's um, one that, that wasn't probably born in America, you know, but but especially their craft beer journey starting in Europe is, is probably a bit backwards than a lot of the people that we have on the show. So it's kind of interesting to hear that, you know, those traditional German styles or, uh, you know, European styles of beer that that you had easy access to and was the norm for you. And then coming to the States... And, um, you know, getting on that hot bad bandwagon with the rest of us, you know, with, with the Plinies and things like that and the, the, uh, the crazy IPAs. And that and, and makes me wonder if there really is, and I think your, your film will probably touch on it, but, you know, is there a swing going back towards those, you know, traditional styles, those things that are so coveted or, um, you know, that's, that's becoming um, appreciated, you know?
2: yeah for sure i think in 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 a lot of styles not just sours um but like i mean we see like the whole like trend now of like producing great lagers again mm, Pils. Mm-hmm. yep I, I feel like that's become the last year or so like wow if like you know like if you can drink like a great local lager then you are like winning <laughs> you know it's not yeah. it's, you know we went through all the stages of the ipas and they've gone so crazy Same with the stouts, you know, as Mm -hmm. you guys know. And I think now we're coming back to like balance again. Like, I think everything went out of whack, like crazy IPAs, crazy adjunct stouts. Now we're coming back to West Coast IPAs as well, (laughs) Yep, which which I appreciate because like, I thought a lot of the hazies were really unbalanced in terms of like taste and also just like they, they were not well-made because I think you can hide a lot of imperfections in those beers. same with Mm -hmm. very high sugary content stouts and now we're coming back to like more like the ogs and the uh traditional stuff so i like it yeah it's good yeah
0: john should we uh take a little journey into what we're uh we're sipping on yeah let's do it so i got i picked us up some of our um you know we talk about lambics lambics aren't exactly the most accessible thing to find if we're talking about you know really traditionals i think one of the most commonly available ones uh, uh, is uh from lindemans uh we go into our wegmans you can buy it pretty much at any time you want um so i picked up this four mix pack i got the uh the cherry lambic the creek Uh, i don't remember which one did you pop open there john
1: this one is the raspberry
0: okay so, obviously, these are the, the heavily fruited varieties uh, of Lambic. This creek is – I like cherries in beer. I think that's one of my favorite fruits, especially when it's got that little sour tartness to it. It almost smells like a Luden's Cough Drop. <laughs> I was a,
2: waiting for that, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but in almost a good way it's not medicinal it's but it's definitely got that kind of scent to it Mm. okay but it's a really tasty opening beer
2: nice
1: yeah i love this beer it's it's delicious um it's got tons and tons of uh fruit flavor and the way that you know you talk about balance i think that this this one feels like a heavy hitter to me in a way that it's got so much of that fruit flavor and so much sour um, and, and sweet as well, that it really uh, is, an, is an intense experience. Um, but, you know, it's also just got such a great body that it doesn't hit you hard and then thin out. It's just got a, a, a great, you know, uh, follow through the whole way.
0: And I don't know about that one, but this one's only 3.5% alcohol. They're very, very low in alcohol.
1: Yeah, I yeah. didn't notice, but that's uh, pretty impressive to have like that much flavor going on. Right. Um, with such a, uh, such a low ABV, but I, you know, it's a funny story about, um, about this beer is before I was really even a beer guy, I went to my in-laws for a Christmas Eve party and my wife's uncle comes in with this case of beer and he's like, this is the best beer that you'll ever have. It's $140 a case or something like that, you know, for, for these bottles you know, a whole case of them. And, and he's not a an IPA or, or, a you know, what we would call like a craft beer nerd. He's just like, this is the best. And I was like, holy crap, that is amazing. And I had no idea what I was drinking. I didn't understand what a Lambic was or, or have anything really to, um you know, to, to really understand what it is. So I just really liked it. And I remember even the first couple of times that I saw it out at bars and things like that, I would get it and order it. Um, and, and really didn't know what it was and and could really appreciate it but it is kind of interesting I wonder why this one in particular just seems to be on all the shelves around us and so easily yeah, it's available
2: everywhere yeah. it's it's even here at uh, at every supermarket it's like yeah it's it's uh, it's that I mean obviously like I don't like to drink those too much because I think they don't represent fully like the traditional, Lambic style anymore because they're so like tweaked and like it's not like a gus, which is like more pure. But Lindemann's and their whole like you know gamut of beers is is a big reason why lambic is still alive, and we we should not forget about it because you know they they had to do that to survive in like in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. They had to make these beers sweeter because no one was interested in sour beer, so. And, uh, that was their way of surviving and they're still around and they still make a traditional goods, which is unsweetened, but it's, that one's harder to find obviously than, than those, but you
1: know, can, can we like, um, kind of start at the beginning with Lambic and try to talk about like, what are the requirements? What really makes a Lambic and, um, yeah, just like what kind of beer is it and, and how is it made?
2: Yeah, so and obviously take this all with like, I don't have like the full technical knowledge because I'm not a brewer myself, but um, I'm just based on my knowledge of making the movie and seeing how they're made and like knowing about the style of their, their wheat beers, basically, Um, they're made with uh, at least uh, 40% or 35% of, of raw wheat so it's a difficult brew in the sense that the boil because of the raw wheat the boil takes a long time it takes much longer than average beers like at least four to five hours i think if i'm not mistaken just to like break all down the break those enzymes down of uh of of the wheat and it's a difficult filtration also because of that um but it's it's a wheat beer in a sense that is like openly fermented so we don't they don't add any yeast um they let the yeast from the air inoculate the brew overnight and then it ferments in barrels for years after that so it's it's a wheat beer in it's in its base and then it becomes a naturally soured beer over time because of the fermentation process
1: yeah it's it's such an insane thing to think about when you look at probably we'll see things like that in the film but um, you know, these cool ships that they're pouring, you know, this ward out onto with, you know, the windows wide open, you know, just letting things in. And, uh, you know, it's a crazy thing to think about, you know, I I really don't have any brewing experience either, you know, a little bit of homebrew, but like, you're so careful about those things. It it just kind of tilts everything that you think you understand about how to make beer, you know, on its end. And, um, it's a really interesting thing to think about because it's, I mean, it's gotta be something that isn't easy to do. And, and, um, you know, what is in place to protect the beer from things going wrong?
2: Yeah. And I think, uh, the parameters for it to, to go, to not go wrong are, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild beer in a sense that like it's only made, well, it's only made during winter times, too. So when it's colder than, uh, I think, 10 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. or 8 degrees Celsius overnight. So it has to be like decently cold overnight for this stuff to get inoculated with the air overnight. Because if you would brew this during the summer, you have all these bacteria in the air that you don't want in the brew that would spoil it. So they figured out that in wintertime, there's only, like, the special yeast in the air and in the environment that doesn't spoil the beer. So it's, like, <laughs> this, like, crazy, like, natural thing that, like, goes back so long. I mean, this is how beer was made in the old ages. I mean, like, you know, back then they didn't have lab-grown yeast, like, you know, with the, um, I mean, like, ancient times. So... Um, and that's spontaneous fermentation. So that's the definition of spontaneous fermentation. It like you you let the wort inoculate the uh, with the yeast that are in the air and in the environment, and then like it ferments spontaneously in the barrels afterwards. It's uncontrollable, which is crazy because like yeah, you if you have a brewery, you want to be in control as much as you want as you can because like you know it's money. You're playing with money. You're playing sure. with like. You know, like a lot of logistics, and you can't afford to like make beer that goes bad, right? But these guys, but these guys have it figured out, and uh, it's definitely a time-consuming beer. It takes like three years to make a bot to, to have it in a bottle, because it has to age for that long, and then they blend it, and then they it re-ferments bottle conditions in the bottle. And uh, yeah, it's like a lot of c- capital that is like long-term investment. It's, uh, it's, it's a very risky type of endeavor. Sure. What about the different styles of Lambic?
1: You know, you see things like a, um, you know, how do you pronounce it? I, I call it a goose.
2: Goose, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, there's Frambois on this bottle. You know, what are the different styles and, and what do they mean?
2: So Lambic is the beer that is brewed. So once it's brewed, it's uh, fermented in the barrels, and it becomes Lambic. And lambic is a still beer because, like in the barrel, like it, the sugars get eaten up by the wild yeast, and it just becomes it becomes flat after a while. So, um, it's basically like like af- it's like wine, but made with grains, so to say, because it's completely flat. If you tap, if you take a sample from the barrel, it's flat. Mm-hmm. And then um, when you blend it together, the different ages. So. Lambic is aged between one and three years, sometimes longer if you want to make a special blend, but the tradition is between one and three years. And a one-year, a two-year, and a three-year-old lambic are blended together in a tank and then immediately bottled afterwards. And then in the bottle, because the different ages have different uh, amounts of sugar in them, mostly the young lambic still has some sugars left over. Um, it creates a carbon, uh, a carbonation, which is the bottle conditioning um, aspect of it. And then it creates bubbles and it becomes goose.
1: Is that, is that always like a, even like 33%, 33%, 33%, or, uh, or, or are you blending to taste, you to know, taste, based on those yeah, batches? Like uh, if we do a little bit more of this, yeah. this two year, okay.
2: Yeah. It's that. And it's also like, um, sometimes there's, there's certain lambic, uh, breweries actually that don't really do the one, two, three year, like, you know, strict guideline like that. Some do only like one and two year and that's enough. That gives them what they want. Or some do like one and three years. And but you always want to have that one year old, that young lambic, because that's the one that's going to spark the fermentation, the re-fermentation in the bottle. So to
1: mm-hmm. say. Okay. So Frambois, is that fruited?
2: Yeah, so then, then you have like the traditional fruits with, uh, with lambic are um, frambois, which, is, uh, which means French for raspberry. And then creek is the Flemish word for cherries. So, because in Belgium it's uh, Flemish and uh, French language. So, that's what creek means. And, and so sa- it's sour cherries that they're using. Um, so, it's not like cherries we b- would buy at the store, which are kind of sweet and very fleshy. These are like very tiny cherries, and the pits, the pit to um, flesh ratio is very like condensed. Like uh, there's not a lot of flesh on them, and they're they're sour cherry. They're a special variety of morello cherries, and um, yeah, they 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 add those to the barrel, and uh, that's when it becomes those fruited beers. But nowadays, there's like all these crazy experiments with different fruits, and it's like. Yeah, it's like it's like the it's becoming almost pastry lambic at a point with some of the fruits that they <laughs> blend with. And
1: yeah, I, mean, I would imagine that the fruits adding uh, like extra sugar that's going to continue to help ferment, maybe bump the ABV, right?
2: Yeah, so that could be. I'm not too sure about that, but that could be. Um, but then again, like I said, like some of those like the raspberries, maybe, but like some of those cherries are pretty sour. And yeah. Um, Even when they're ripe, when they pick them ripe, I don't know how much sugar is in those because I've tasted them right from the tree when we went and filmed with them when they were picking them and they're still pretty sour. (laughs) So, but uh, no, I mean, nowadays, like you have people that blend with grape, I mean, I shouldn't say blend they macerate the grapes uh, in the barrels uh, or in the tanks uh, with the lambic and I mean, it's grapes, you know, plums. um, I mean, it's endless. One guy even did like a passion fruit Uh, (laughs) lambic. It's not, it's not that traditional anymore. What about hops? Um, I I see that,
1: you know, aged hops are used in, you know, how aged are they and, and what is that? What, what part do they play?
2: So the hops use, it's uh, it's the complete opposite of what uh, dry hopping is, for example, like they use the aged hops just for the um, aspect of, um, how do I say this, of um, preservation, so to, to uh, not make the beer go bad. So in that sense... Okay, so this goes back to earlier, where you were saying, like, how do you control them? Well, I think they, the, the, one of the aspects of control that they have is, like, using aged hops and the, I don't know what it's called anymore, but what's inside the hops, uh, when they're aged, the flavors go away, the bitterness goes away, but the preservative aspect stays, and so it goes, it, uh, they put that in the boil, and um those those hops are usually aged a minimum like 4 to 5 years i mean there was one time where we were at trifontaine and then they were brewing and they were using hops from like that were almost 20 years old like aged oh, hops wow. yeah and you can buy them like from places that age hops for a long ass time like some hops they even had like from the 80s this is crazy. Yeah, that's wild that's wild and so, and so that's that's that what helps. That's what helps the beer from spoiling, is is that uh, preservative aspect that hops have. But it doesn't add any of the hip, uh, bitterness or any of the hoppy taste that we have from IPAs. Sure, that, that tropical taste. You know,
0: it's so funny how almost everything about this beer style is ass backwards from everything we know. Is <laughs> <opposite. You> know. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> it, 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 we got to keep bacteria. We got to keep all this stuff out of the beer. Oh, no, we're just going to open the window and let in whatever we got. We yeah, got to use exactly. the freshest hops. No, we're going to use these hops that are like <laughs> 22 years old.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, Jerry, Jerry, how
0: did you get into this? So is it like the, the chicken or the egg? Were you a filmmaker that discovered this uh, subject that you wanted to tackle, or were you interested in this subject so much that you went into the film route with it?
2: No, I've, uh, my, my job is a filmmaker. I've, uh, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid. Um, and then I, I, the reason why I came to California to LA was to go to film school. So, which is, you know, where the Mecca is of film, so to say. So, um, that's my job. I went through like a whole phase of, uh, working on, on big TV shows and movies as a camera operator. And then, um, when I met my wife, who is a director in film, uh, I, I started producing her films. And so now this is my first film that I'm actually directing this documentary and she's producing it. So it's a role reversal. But I'm, my main job currently is, is producing films. And so I was always a beer aficionado and like, um, you know, I, I, I was craven content. I, I saw wine documentaries, some were good, some were bad. I saw a lot of craft beer docs too, and I've pretty much seen them all. And I thought that they, they were fine, but like, they didn't really go like deep. They, they were mostly made I think by people that were more fans rather than filmmakers. So it's more like fan films. Mm. And I'm, you know, I, I I just was craving something deeper, and I just was like, man, I I, I want to make a documentary on beer. That's where it started, and then you start to like think, well, what what is the topic? I mean, beer is so vast, right? I mean, like, <laughs> you know. And, and the the other thing was like, I was really I was really upset, like you probably are too, that beer has a really bad rep. Like, I mean, it's like people think beer is this cheap drink that is inferior to wine, you know, like, ah, oh, you you drink beer, well, you're not going to like wine because wine is for connoisseurs. Wine is for, like, you know, sophisticated people. You're drinking peasant stuff. So I, I wanted to, like, kind of, like, break that stigma and bring a movie to the general masses and, like, you know, build some, I don't know, some maybe some <laughs> respect in the general audience's view for beer. And... Uh, you know, I don't want to sound, you know, self-righteous or anything, but I felt like I I, I I, needed to do it because I didn't see anybody else doing it. Yeah. I didn't see anybody else taking on that topic. And yeah, then it grows into like, then you're like, wow, what, what's the topic going to be? <laughs> and then it's like, okay, I always wanted to, I, I always, I quickly ventured into like, okay, it should be something about a traditional area of beer. I don't want to make something, at least not in my first film about beer. I don't want to make something about American craft beer because I feel like there's been a lot of talks about that. Although they were maybe not that good, I thought, but there's stuff out there. Why not go back to like the roots, you know, find find a topic in maybe Belgium. And then you like start looking at Belgian beer and you realize, holy shit, that's also a vast topic. It's like you can't just you can't just make a beer about Belgian beer and like and so like eventually I landed on lambic because I discovered that like when I started looking into it that like there's like some insane history there like it's a beer that almost disappeared completely with uh, industrialization after World War II and we touch about on that in the in the movie too because it's important to understand that. While Lambic has a resurgence today, and while we can, you know, geek about it nowadays, this was a farm-to-table beer before World War II, and then when Coca-Cola came into Europe, spoiled everybody's taste buds, everybody wanted sweet stuff, no one cared about bitter or sour beers anymore, and from hundreds of breweries and blenderies, less than 10 survived, and so this fear almost went extinct and it was like incredible richness there in terms of like historical background.
1: That's such an interesting story arc to think that, you know, something that was very popular almost completely disappears. Yeah. wondering who's left, who's drinking this, how are we surviving? who Who's appreciating it? And then to see, you know, if you were to look at a graph and the, you know, the, the, uh, the, like the bell curve or whatever you want to call it, like it, just completely uh skyrocketing to um you know people going crazy for it and you know bidding on things and doing everything they can to to get a hold of these beers it's uh it's pretty crazy i think it might be yeah. a good time uh to to show to show the trailer what do you think mr steve
0: get it out there yeah let's let yeah let's do the, you want to do this one
1: next?
2: nice there you go we can,
0: we can open while you're uh while you have the uh trailer going here. Yeah,
1: so uh, I'm going to try to play this trailer and then uh when we come back, we will uh we will talk more.
2: Aujourd'hui, le patrimoine du n'existe plus, hein? La which was a popular boisson at the time, the people it Hey Jonathan, how are you doing?
0: Did uh, you announce that we're going to have balls? Yeah. We have almost 4,000 people connected to the website trying to refresh.
1: Today we find ourselves in a situation where people are ready to pay what traditional lambic beer is worth. Which
0: I relate to a broader trend in food and drink. People began to care about knowing the story about it and knowing
2: how it was made. Le Lambic est une beer de fermentation spontanée. So we never had any kind of yeast. It takes time, you cannot control, you have to hope. It's such a pure beer. But 70s, 80s, even 90s, no one was asking for Lambic. Different times in my life I said, it's over. That's enough. Ça allait très mal comme dans toutes les brasseries de Lambic à l'époque. And today,
0: Lambic is... Very trendy. It's something that no other beer quite has. Some people, we start left and right. If there's any hype around the beer, don't blame it on me. I just started making beer because I love Lambing and I thought I could make something too. There are many things I don't understand parfois.
2: It's devenu a milieu totalement different. In such a brewery, when, when such a, a history it's very emotional.
0: Very emotional. The goal is to stay relevant in a world where things are expanding, consumers are challenging. It's about preserving tradition and making a viable business of traditional lambic. And again, the question is, what is
2: tradition, of course? People are always asking for new things. That's not the problem. But never betray the beer. Never. I
0: can't fucking believe that people would ever pay the amount of the money they would for a fucking lambic God bless everybody, man, because holy shit, man, you couldn't give this shit away fucking 20 years ago, man.
1: That thing that's so intense. All right, so just from like a filmmaking point of view, that music, you know, those sound bites, um, I mean, it was intense and it was it was a a trailer about beer. You know what I mean, <laughs> but like you feel real emotions, you know, watching that thing. It's pretty intense, and I love that guy at the end.
2: Oh uh, yeah, Chris Lively. He's a legend. If you're ever up in uh, in Maine, yeah. he has a pub uh, called Ebenezer's Pub. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about it, but oh, what part of Maine? So it's it's in it's a, in a very small village or town called Lo- Lovell, Lovell, Maine, and it's like okay. two hours or an hour and a half outside of portland so it's in the middle of nowhere but it's a beer mecca like one of the top beer meccas if not the top one in america i mean his seller every two years for example he 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 hosts an event that's really worth attending it's called the night of great thirst and it's always in august and we we filmed there actually during that uh, because one of the protagonists in the movie has uh attends it and it's like a crazy like um yeah crazy event and um it's a it's an event dedicated to lambic and he has probably the most insane lambic cellar in the country yeah. it's it's very deep and very very <laughs> very cool <laughs> so what, what
1: tell me i'm trying to imagine what it's like making this film like you said you put a lot of time into it a lot of filming um where did you travel? Who did you meet? You know, and um, you know what was it actually like? You know, traveling to these places and getting this footage.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was a tough journey at times. It was uh, it, it was it started obviously in Belgium um, because that's where all the protagonists are. So basically, our movie focuses on Cantillon, uh, Lee Fontainen, and then uh, Boca which uh, is formerly known Bo- as Boca rider is a guy that's the young guy in the trailer that you saw who's mm-hmm. like questioning tradition, so to say, right. Um, his beers out of everybody. I'm not sure if you had any of his beers, but they're very hyped, like the most hyped of any lambic producer, even more than Cantillon, very small production. And he's the guy that I mentioned earlier, for example, who would, who makes like a passion fruit lambic mm-hmm. and it's fucking phenomenal. you like, how is this even possible (laughs) he he makes crazy fruit blends um of combination of fruits you've never heard of and it works and people go crazy uh, about it so so those three people they're in they're in belgium and uh, we filmed with them and um yeah the first year that we filmed 2019 we went back three times the first time for a full month and we went back in the summer for another month and then in the fall for another, like, two or three weeks. And then, um, and then COVID hit the next year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of, like, were lucky that we knew uh, actually an American videographer that lived in Belgium that I had become friends with who could shoot some stuff for us while we were not able to travel over. So because, like, Lambic, the problem with Lambic is, like, it it it's like a year-round production, and different things happen at, in different seasons. Like for example, the brewing happens only in 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 the winter time. So if you if you like if you're like missing a shot that you didn't get the first time, like for example, a specific like barrels fermenting shot, you're like fuck, I didn't get that shot. Now you have to wait till the next winter to go shoot it because they're not gonna have <laughs> fermenting barrels in the yeah. summer. So this guy, uh, his name is Cliff, and the fact that he was there was like for like a year or so until I was able to go back one more time uh, in 2021. we were shooting remotely, basically. He would shoot and he would upload the footage to Dropbox and uh, I would use it and edit with and um, it, it was hard to coordinate because of the nine hour difference, obviously because you like shooting when we we're sleeping so it's like sometimes I would stay up during the night if like there was a thing happening that he needed to get a hold of me and yeah and then we filmed also in like um, in Massachusetts with the Shelton brothers uh, right before Shelton brothers uh, went uh, out of business um, so that's the last interview of the three brothers together right before that happened
1: who are they I'm, I'm not even familiar with them
2: Oh, the Shelton brothers there. Um, well, if you're, if, if the reason why Cantillon, tri and like even Phantom, Cezanne and like all these like big OG Belgian beers are in the country is because those guys brought them in. They were the first importers in the nineties of, uh, of, of these beers. Okay. And so uh, Shelton Brothers went out of business. Oh, I, I
1: remember reading that article. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Crazy. yeah. yeah. So, so they're they're like legends in the sense of like they inspired in my opinion a lot of the sour breweries in America by bringing these traditional lambics of Cantillon and Trifontaine and into America and people discovering them here. Like they're like, you know, this was like in the late 90s, and, and no one knew really yet what it was. No one knew. I mean, you had Lindemann's, Lindemann's was already here, and most of it was fruited stuff, mm-hmm. like what you guys have. But this, like, really traditional stuff that, you know, never went that sweetened, fruited, uh, fruited uh, route uh, was not known to people. And, uh, yeah, I think, they, I think we owe a lot to them for bringing them in. And they were just beer geeks. They just went there and, like, they discovered it and they were like, wow, how can I get this beer in the States? And then, like, at their local shop in Brooklyn where they lived, where the main brother, Dan, lived, he went to his craft beer store. And this was in the mid-90s and was like, yeah, I had this beer, uh, this Canteon beer. Can you guys do you guys get that? Like, I don't see it on your shelves. <laughs> the woman was like, uh, yeah, no, I've never even heard of that. And he was like, well, how can I how can we get it over here? Like, my we're friends with the brewery. Can we somehow ship it to you and then you can sell it to us? And the woman was like, well, for that, you would have to get an importer's license. That's literally what she said to him. <laughs> and then he was like, oh, shit, I should get it. I, he was a lawyer by day. He was like a, okay. a lawyer. Job and he was like, "I've got some time. I'm gonna start, you know, applying for a license." And because they were friends with the Cantillon family, and the Cantillon didn't have an importer at that time to the U.S., was like, "Yeah, sure, we'll give you 17 containers or like <laughs> 17 pallets." Sorry. <laughs> wow. Um, and that's how it started.
1: That's such. That's so wild. So, if they're yeah. out of business, how are those bottles getting to the states today?
2: So another another importer took over their accounts, basically all of their accounts. Um, oh, they yeah, they went out of business. I think it was at the end of 2020 when that article came out that you mm-hmm. that you read. Um, so we, okay. yeah, we filmed with them right before it was like, because Dan also now moved to Germany. I think he lives in Germany because he has a German wife. So that was also crazy coordinating that because it was like, I realized I wanted to interview them And it was like September 2020, it was like, you know, middle of pandemic. And I get in touch with them. And one of the brothers, Joel, tells me, well, Dan is leaving for Germany like tomorrow. He has a plane booked and everything. And he's probably not going to come back for a couple of years. And I'm like, well, uh, I need to interview him for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, what can we do and can you please talk to Dan and tell him about like this movie and like that it's really important that he's in it because he was, you know, important to the story of sure. bringing these years over. And so he, he was like, he agreed to change his plane ticket. Actually his wife and his kid already like flew, but he changed his ticket to a, to a week later. He also still had some stuff to wrap up anyway. So he was like, okay, to stay an extra week. And then we flew Me and my cinematographer flew out to uh, Massachusetts, where they are based out of, also in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) not even Boston or anything. Um, And uh, yeah, and then we interviewed all three brothers because um, they all played a different role in uh, creating that company. Wow. That's so
1: crazy to think about that, you know, they, they made that business just because of their love for it like I'm sure there wasn't yeah, yeah. Th- there wasn't people like a ton of people buying it at that time right yeah. uh, such a crazy thing yeah what, what can you tell us about this beer here
2: uh, yeah goes to cam yeah that's uh that's it's quite um, that guy also has a, a, a pretty crazy story he was um so Pierre Tilquin. So on the bottle, you'll see, see Tilquin. That's the last name of the guy who, uh, yeah, Tilquin. Yep.
0: I, I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you here, but I just want to point out how much better he says stuff than we say stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we're like I, had,
2: I we're had, like, had to learn it. I had to learn it because I don't want to embarrass myself in front of the brewers. we
0: Yeah, the geese Tilquinin. All right, <laughs> like I just had please. to point that out. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he's an apprentice of uh, Jean Armand from uh, Cantillon and Lee Fontaine, and who uh, opened his own blendery in 2009. So that was like the first time somebody opened a new lambic blendery since like the downfall since like. You know, because until then, until 2009, like, only the ones that survived after World War II with the industrialization were around. And so Pierre Tilquin, he was like the first one that um, opened something up, um, uh, you know, that was completely new from scratch. And uh, he, he's a blender. He's not a brewer. So he gets the wort from four different suppliers, from four different Lambic breweries. And... Um, and he ages them, and he ages the ward in his own barrels. And then he does his blend. And uh, so usually in that blend right there, there's four different producers in there. There's He's also the only one who gets ward from Cantillon, which is unheard of, because Cantillon doesn't give ward to anybody. It's only because he has like a past relationship working there. Yeah. And he probably bugged them so long that they <laughs> gave-, gave it to him. Um but yeah, so in that bottle right there is components of Cantillon, Lindemans, uh Boone, and uh also Girardin, which is uh another uh yeah, brewery.
1: I don't know if I've had that one. I've definitely had the uh the goose boon.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Girardin, if you can find it, it's uh it's also very small quantities that get imported and only small bottles like those. That's one of my favorites, to be honest. There, that's a very hoppy lambic, actually, because he uses aged hops, but also fresh hops. Hmm. He's the only one that does that, and it gives like a really heavy body to the to the goods. Like it's completely different than the other ones. But it, it's like in the lambic scene, if you if you've noticed, is like or like I don't know, but like if you get deep into it, you notice that like that's like one of the like very under the radar, but very like um, appreciated uh, breweries.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's yeah. it's such a a crazy. I mean, so like you were saying, this beer is not um, is not one that that has fruit or anything added to it. It's more of the the traditional style, so I really like it because you get the oaky. And I'm usually not a um, somebody that likes the the straw, the straw flavor, you know. Or I'm I'm not a saison. Yeah, I'm not a saison guy. You know, sometimes yeasts can get a little funky for me. um, But I love these style beers, and I do appreciate these, especially after having one that sweet. Um, this is just such uh, It's
2: probably quite a change up from what you yeah. just said. Yeah, it's like sure. almost very tart, I would assume. Yep. Right,
1: very tart,
0: very um, more acidic than the, than the mm-hmm. liniments, definitely. But the thing about these beers is you can take a sip and try and think about what you taste and whatnot, and then go back for that second sip and come up with like a completely different set of descriptors. You know, these beers yeah. you can sit and you know chew on and dissect and the next thing you know like a half hour has passed you've had like four sips and you're just like staring at it wondering what else you're going to (laughs) taste
2: yeah for sure that's the thing it's like it's got depth it's got layers it opens also up over like when you let it sit in the glass for a while it's like you know it breathes it's like a wine like in that sense it's very complex
1: and so tell me about um you know your, your little cradle that you've got for your bottle there I don't know what you oh, call those. Yeah.
2: The basket. The
1: basket, yeah. But you know what? What is the deal with those exactly? Because I don't understand exactly why you always see the uh, the lambics getting poured in those.
2: Uh, because when you store them horizontally, all the um, yeast set, uh, all the sediment um, is you know on the side of the bottle because it's stored horizontally, and you don't want to mix that sediment with uh, the beer. You don't want to drink that because it changes the flavors. It, uh, so, uh, a cradle like that or a basket like that keeps it at an angle so that the sediment stays in the bottle while you pour. Gotcha. And, um, that's, that's why the beer, when you pour it is, is rather transparent. I mean, here it's a little, probably a little sediment got mixed into it, So it's a bit hazy, but, um, yeah, the first pours usually are like completely clean because if you would pour it, if you would, if you store it for a while horizontally and then you... Stand it upright and you start pouring it, everything's going to get mixed. And it it really does taste, a ch- uh, uh, change the taste. Like if you drink the sediment, if you drink those dregs, like we say, <laughs> you're going to taste like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, change. I'm sure the it's intense. What, whatever, yeah. whatever
1: settles probably is pretty crazy. So, like, yeah. in the movie, who, who are some of the, who were some of the most interesting characters that you talked to that just um, completely, you know, surprised you,
2: if any? Oh, um, surprised me. Uh, I think everybody surprised me in different ways, like because you do your research and you have an idea about somebody, even when you talk with them before you start filming. I, in, I flew to Belgium just to like meet everybody and just make a connection. And that's already different than when you start filming with them, because then you get into the weeds of it. And like, you know, life happens. And like, you, you capture things that are like, not maybe like what they would tell you in your first meeting. Um, but I'd, I'd say like, um, yeah, it's hard to say who who surprised me the most. I, I think maybe if I think back, um, Cantillon the storyline is really the is really a father and strong it's a, a son struggle story so it's like a, a generational like story so Cantillon is still owned majorly by the, the father of Jean the Jean is the head brewer head blender and he's the figurehead of uh, of Cantillon mm-hmm. but the parents still own 50% of the brewery. And they're old and they're set in their ways. So like, you know, they they went through the shit. They went through the hard times, you know, and like they don't necessarily always agree with all this like new stuff that Jean is doing, like all these like trends of like these fruit, crazy fruit blends, because he does a lot of them too. He's really into wines and he does a ton of like grape blends with lambic. And, um, yeah, so like at the, in the beginning, I, I didn't really think about interviewing his dad and his mom, but like, I quickly realized I needed to, because that's where the history lies. That, those are the people that went through it. And Jean really is just, and his sisters, cause his sisters also work at the brewery. They are just reaping the benefits now because now lambic is trendy, but are they
1: busier than ever? Are they Are they Uh, making more beer than ever before? Yeah. That's got to be such a crazy thing to just be, you know, a multi-generational brewery and to, you know, just go through whatever you've gone through all those years and then to all of a sudden just have this incredible demand. Uh, I I mean, not only does it change how you operate as a business, but I mean, man, you know, all that work for so long to finally show that, you know, that payoff it's got to be so, yeah. so
2: crazy it's sticking it's sticking to your morals and like jean pierre was that jean pierre is the father he he um he figured out a way to survive uh, and it was basically by creating a museum to attract people to come to his brewery and try the beers and you know get the beers known that way so it was a genius idea back then but now it's like you know at the, at his low point i think when the least amount of demand was ever In the 60s or so when they almost closed down i think jean-pierre brewed maybe like one year or a couple years in a row only like eight times the whole year wow so it's like how do you make i mean how do you even like have enough beer to like blend something together and now if you look at now like what Jean, his son is brewing is minimum like i i want to say 30 to 40 times a year which still sounds like not a lot but like you have to think like they can only brew certain times during the winter Mm -hmm. but heat they're brewing really every day that they can like if the temp, sometimes now with global warming to the winters are really short yeah like the winter doesn't start sometimes till late november for them and ends already in march so they have a really short window of brewing and they brew 30 to 40 times a year and like with them it's like there's a prep day there's a whole day of prepping the equipment because they're working with equipment from the 1900s and uh then there's the brew day and then there's the clean day so you have three days out of the week that are already like (laughs) that account only for one One, day of
1: brewing one batch that's insane yeah
2: so you can really only brew like once maybe twice a week if you're willing to work on the weekend so it's that's, like... that's, an,
1: that's crazy so what do you what are your thoughts on um or what do you know about any type of american style lambics you know who's out there making or trying to make you know as close as they can to a traditional style lambic and are they doing any good at it
2: i think there's a lot of good american spontaneous uh fermentation brewers um like the best probably i would say personally is the Guard out in mm. Oregon. Um, they're very respectful of the tradition. Um, they really follow. like I, I they're also close friends with all these big lambic producers in Belgium. So they get a lot of they got a lot of pointers and like help in like trying to get started in terms of advice. And uh, I know Jester King makes some good stuff. Although I've personally never had any of their spontaneous beers. I've had some of their saisons and stuff, but I hear it's good. Um, Allagash, right? They're probably doing Allagash. Oh my God. I totally forgot. Yeah. Cause there's what they were the first ones actually in America. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So Allagash makes some good stuff. I Russian river is not personally like not their spontaneous stuff. I'm not crazy about, I think Mm. it's too sour. Um I yeah. think I
1: have like a 2013 something consecration. Yeah, uh, something like that. I've just been that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Some of their stuff is too sour for me. I prefer their IPAs.
1: <laughs> you kind of touched on that that when you started this, you kind of imagined a film going one way and and it switched to another. It it makes me think of that um that documentary Icarus. You know, where, where oh, yeah. he goes in just kind of like doing this thing on doping in and, uh, you know, in sports and then yeah. it becomes something completely different. You know, it's such a wild story. But, you know, ha- w- what's your version of that? You know, what, what happened during filming that kind of just com- did, did it completely change direction?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's probably not as, you know, crazy sounding <laughs> as Icarus, <in it>, because <laughs> I'm not covering any doping or any like crimes like that. Um, but I wanted to make like a pretty like PG film in terms of like, oh, I'm gonna cover all the seasons, you know, because there's the brewing season, then there's the blending season, and then there's like you know, the fruiting season during the summer. So I was gonna make like a year in Lambicland, basically mm-hmm. uh, but I quick I think I realized like after this first or hopefully by the second trip, I realized to Belgium, the second trip to Belgium, I realized, yeah, I feel like then I'm just going to make another like fan film. And the mm. whole reason why I wanted to make a, a real film about beer, where beer was more of the backstory and more of like the human stories in the forefront was to bring it to a more general audience, to make it accessible. No one's going to watch, no one in general audience who is not into beer, is going to watch A Year in Lambing. It's just right, not yeah. So it's like you have to find like, okay, what story am I really telling? Is there something, is, is it going to be just a historical film? I'm like, ah, that's also like a bit one note. And so what it ended up being is something that morphed into the fact that like, how can you stay true to like yourself and tradition in today's world of craft beer? That's really the challenges that all of these guys are going through that I'm filming is like, you know, there's such demand. And when there's a lot of demand, you can get, temp- you can get tempted to like, you know, make stuff that is maybe not very traditional and like just ride that train of hype. And so that's kind of the, the question I ask in the film and the stories that I follow is like, what toll does that have on each of the three camps that I follow? And, um, yeah, it's, it's a different outcome for everybody. So you guys will have to watch the movie to find out.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of, I want to make sure you get the full time for this. When's it come out? Where can we see it at?
2: So, uh, we're in the final stages of editing. Uh, we're going to have it done by mid to late April. And then we hope to show it at certain like big film festivals. I'm not talking Sundance or anything like that, but because uh, it wouldn't. I don't think it would fit there, but, um, you know, there's large documentary film festivals that can give you a, a jumpstart a platform of like finding like, you know, like a distributor for it, because my goal, like I said, was like to bring it to a general audience. And make it accessible. So I wanted to live on a platform. Not sure if it's like a Netflix film because Netflix has a formula of like very like specific docs. But I could see it like being on something like Hulu, for example, in in the U.S. and then for Europe and overseas, we'll have to see what else. But um, yeah, so I think festivals, film festivals, after it's done. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we started submitting to some with our early cut, but I can't say anything about that yet because we're not sure, obviously, if we're going to get in. So I don't want to spoil anything, um, but uh, hopefully we'll know something soon.
1: How does this get funded? I mean, I noticed you do raffles and things like that to raise money. So um, is there still funds needed? Can people still help support the film to, to help you know get this fully realized?
2: No, we're not fundraising anymore. Uh, we're 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 good on that. We we were really happy that the last one was so successful. We did two crowdfunding campaigns, and then that that so that that one that um, you found out about us just recently in December was our last little stretch. Um, it was basically just to get us uh, over the hill with uh, some of the costs that are happening now in the final stages. But we started with. Our own money first, that first trip to Belgium in in January of 2019 was fully funded by money from myself, my cameraman put money in and my producer. So our own money. Then we did a crowdfunding campaign where we raised uh, 30,000 or 32,000 um, dollars in uh, June of that year. So that got us to the next step. Mm-hmm. And then during that crowdfunding campaign, I certain like people in the brewing industry um, who are fans of Lambic found out about the project and were like, can I invest in it? And so we took them up on it, obviously, because we needed way more than what we raised for from the crowdfunding. We just used crowdfunding as like the next stepping stone, but we didn't know what was going to happen next. We needed investors. So yeah, we, we found a couple of investors and, uh, yeah, they carried us all the way through to now. And then this last little bit that we needed, we did through a raffle and it's like, you know, it's a puzzle. It's like, there's no one formula. And, every, and the next movie that we make is probably going to be completely different on how sure. we fund it. It's like, it's always like whatever you can get. Cause you can't just go to the bank and ask for a loan. They won't give that to filmmakers. It's, it's not what they do. Right. Man, that's so. that's
1: such a, a crazy story to think about. You know, I'm sure the film itself, it's got an amazing story, but you know, just trying to think about what actually goes into, you know, getting all that footage, doing all the travel, putting the time and effort into editing, paying, you know, cameramen, sound people, yeah, whatever it is, all that stuff. But um it looks amazing. Like that that trailer is intense. And I like, I kind of like, you know, what you picked out of it because, you know, talking about the hype and seeing that like websites are crashing for people going, you know, going after it, but also, you know, just people speaking a different language, talking about the passion for the beer, like for whatever reason, that really, you know, yeah. does something, you know what I mean? Um, has, has cred for some reason, you know? And uh I don't know. It's, it's it's really exciting. I, I'm really excited to see this thing come out. And I know what you yeah. mean about the Netflix thing. I feel like if somebody, um, you know, if, if some guy doesn't, uh, you know, jerk off his neighbor, <laughs> you know, then somewhere randomly in the middle of the documentary, then, like, they just... There's always that moment, right, in a Netflix documentary where something goes completely sideways. And you're like, where did that come from? But they always need that moment of, what the F?
0: I got to tell you, John, I was going to go the true crime direction like i feel like <laughs> netflix is all true crime for me exactly. i'm not quite sure what documentaries you have popping up that the guy's jerking off the neighbor <laughs> yeah, i, know, you know, I know what i'm, I'm talking
1: like... about maybe it's a true crime it wasn't so much a documentary <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: yeah no i mean they just have like a formula right i mean they like they just need content and they like know what works on their platform what gets people to click and I mean, hey, like, they who crank knows? them I'm, out, man. I, I don't know now, but like, you know, people, we're definitely going to try to sell it to Netflix, but um, they, they, they've become really like big in terms of like a studio and stuff. So this might be too artsy for them. Yeah. It's, man.
1: What a, you know, talk about how um, the beer landscape has changed. I'm sure the same, you can say the same thing about film, right? I mean, yeah, things sure. were getting done a completely different way 10 years ago. And uh, I don't know, it's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah. I mean, like uh, and, and this is this really plays into like the, the, the whole community aspect of uh, making films and also the beer community as a whole is like, I mean, we made this movie and this movie was possible because of the beer community. All the money that we got to be able to make this passion project which now turned into like a real thing is from comes from the beer community like we raised x amount on crowdfunding which is mostly i mean sure there's family and friends in there too but like the 90 percent of that money comes from like beer people that don't know us but that are excited about the project and so like the support has been really amazing and we couldn't have done it without that community and i always i always kind of hoped that was going to be the case cuz that's why i'm like very adamant about my social media too i'm not big on social media at all on the personal aspect but i saw that like craft beer lives on social media and if i want people to know about this film and potentially support it i need to be on it and i need to like you know get in touch with people get you know you know find out about what they're up to and stuff like that and communicate with them and it, it, I'm, I'm just amazed every day that it actually worked out. That this community is actually so fucking supportive of our project because they could have just said like, oh yeah, cool, I'll wait for the movie to come out, but like, I'm not gonna give you any money. But I was like, wow, people are actually like really fucking excited and supporting this financially. So, and that's how we found our investors because they're also all people in the beer community, like. You, you, you're not going to find anybody some random guy on the street or random or like a more general audience member who's going to invest in a film like that. It needs to be somebody who cares deeply about beer, about Lambic specifically. And yeah, it's just really, really thankful that, and I think that's how movies are being made now is with community building.
1: So. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Um, I think it's, it's It looks fantastic. I'm, I'm really excited to see the final yes. product. Um, it, it's something that, you know, I know that I appreciate Lambic beer to an extent, but um, like anything else, and, and we always say this, I sound like a broken record sometimes, but when you really get a good backstory, you know, it can really help build up that product. You know, it's you, you can have the beer and be like, wow, this is probably one of the best beers I've ever had. But if you really took the time to find out the family's history, what yeah. actually goes into making that beer, um, you know what it takes to make it, but only also like what that business has been through, what they've gone through, what their processes are, how they're getting it to you today. People would probably that that beer might taste a little better, you know.
2: And, and also, I think like people will hopefully see beer in a different light like i'm talking more of general audience in this in this aspect because like i said one of my motivating things to make this was that i was just like i just saw like when you talk to people that are not into beer they don't really respect it but it's like uh, it's an art and it's a craft that's like very respectable i mean it's like it's a beer it's it's a billion dollar industry like that should mean something you know it's like there's something behind it that's more than just like, you know, a bunch of like us beer bros, you know, geeking out on stuff. No, it's actually like a good quality product. And it plays into the whole craft farm the table aspect that we're going through as a society, you know? And, and but like, I think like, yeah, I, I, I hope that that will come across in the movie I can see from a community from a craft beer community aspect that people are very excited about and, and, and they're going to watch it for sure. But I really hope also like it's going to reach beyond that because that will be my like last, you know, like I would be like really stoked about that. I would be like, uh, we did something right. And that's why it was so important when we shifted what the movie was going to be into a more like a human aspect and really make the people, more forefront we talk about how the beer is made in the film and everything but like it's very much like human stories and like things that people can relate to like family businesses and the struggles of the generations inside and like you know some people riding a hype train because something is trendy but are they going to burn out or not you know it's like those are all things that translate into other industries and in everyday life and i hope by focusing on that that people will then like look at beer in a different light hopefully so yeah
1: (laughs) what an amazing goal i mean it's it's such a um i think i think it's important i think that i would love to see you know lambic um you know appreciated or you know um i guess appreciated as much you know, as, as like a nice high-end wine or something like that. You know what I mean? Where, where people would, would order them just like they do wine at, at really nice restaurants and things like that. And, and people just really uh, appreciate it. But, yeah.
2: what, what and, a- we, we talk about that in the movie, too. Like, you know, uh, one of the guys in the movie says, like, you know, the concept of, like, aging a beer is not something that most people know about. You know, I mean, you can also age stouts and stuff like that um but lambic in particular is a beer that you can age for a long time and like most people don't know that that's that beer can do that they just think of that like for wine right like they're like oh yeah i've had this 1980 bordeaux like perfect you know like right now it's on its peak but like you can have that with lambic too other than like sure we know about fresh ipas drink them fresh maybe but like beyond that, no one had a no one really in general audience has a concept of like, you know, age and vintages of beer. Yeah,
1: it's a so, it's it's a it's a wild concept that you know hopefully more people um, get in tune with and and it continues its uh, upward trend. You know. Yeah, yeah. So sure. Hopefully, you play a big part in that, and um, you know, and and you know, making people aware
2: yeah and that's uh that's why I like to do these podcasts too, because it like just helps spread the word about it. so
1: yeah, well, we were really excited about it, and uh you know, of course, you know we appreciate the content, but uh it was just it's, it's actually it's really been a pleasure talking with you and just helping us better understand the beers and the project itself is just so exciting, so we're super excited about it. Uh, Mr. Yeah. Steve, you ready for the toast? Let's do a toast. How about a beer? Woo! Might
0: Be Brews presents the Toast of the Week. Oh, my God,
1: man. All right, Jerry, so I'm kind of springing this on you, but uh, every right. week we do uh, a Toast of the Week. So it can be something that you, um, you know, going on in your life or whatever that you just are excited about, want to give a quick shout-out to. You can toast it. It can be burnt toast if it's something that you're mad at. You can uh you know yeah, yeah you can trash something too if you want to. Mr. Steve, you got something you want to go first?
0: I got something. It might sound stupid, but hear me out. YouTube. Okay. How great is YouTube? YouTube's fantastic. I was watching a Rush documentary. You know the the band Rush. Of course. So what do I do after I get done watching this documentary? I punch up YouTube and I'm looking up Rush videos, live videos for like 45 minutes. When I was a kid, you know, in 1994, and my like when I was super into music, you couldn't do that. If I wanted to have a Rush album, I had to go buy that album, that CD, that that cassette. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was on a Pearl Jam kick, and I was able to go to YouTube and find very specific. Pearl Jam live recordings that had this one drummer who was there for like three years. These kids today, I, you know, my youngest is really getting into music and she's discovering the grunge stuff. So I'm suggesting stuff to her. She hops right on YouTube. It's the easiest thing in the world just for music, you know, to be able to go back and watch some old episodes of a TV show. If we missed an episode of a TV show, it was gone. You missed it. You couldn't watch it. You know, if I missed Saturday Night Live, I wasn't in on the jokes. But now these kids can just go online. They can pop on YouTube. They can pop it right up. So here's the YouTube.
1: Yeah, cheers cheers, YouTube. I think that all the time about Google. Granted, I think yeah. Stage. I think about that all the time. Like when I'm on my phone and I'm like, I get free navigation anywhere that I want to. You know, I can like the amount of data that you can look up is this restaurant open? You know, and nobody's charging me for it. Like we run our, our entire lives on it. You know, and, and calendars and all of these things, and nobody's charging me anything for it. It's amazing. If, yeah, if you're not paying for to, it, yeah, that's right. If you're not paying <laughs> for it, you have
2: to buy maps to navigate. I used to like, get map
1: books. You know, I actually yeah. had like a job that yeah. that required routing, and I would get map books and I would draw like little circles on each street that uh, of each house that I needed to go to to figure out. You know, what I was doing. It, it was crazy, and I'm not even that old, but. It's crazy how they, I was like one of the first people, you know, around me in my company that adopted like an actual Tom Tom GPS. Oh my they, god! They,
2: used to, fun, yeah, they used, yeah. used to make fun.
1: Yeah, they used to make fun of me. They're like, John can't go to the bathroom without a GPS. You know, because <laughs> like it was like not a cool thing to do. But I'm like, f you guys, like this, this is the future, man. But was um, that before
2: the Garmin like or I used a Tom
1: Yeah, right around the Garmin. Right around the Garmin. I said Garmin. Same time. I'm from yeah. Boston. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my toast is, uh, going to be to the wife this week. Um, you know, obviously I, I I don't know if anybody really knows, I don't know if I was like really telling anybody, but, um, my daughter and I had COVID this past week. So the wife was really just, you know, doing everything they could to, um, keep the house going and things like that. So toast to her for keeping, um, you know, the house afloat and everything, taking care of the kids, all that good stuff. But luckily it was uh, nice and easy, nothing, nothing too crazy. Just a little. Cold symptoms and got that's got good. over it. So I'm, you know, vaxxed and boosted, and, you know, still, you know, four weeks later I have COVID, but, you know, it is what it is.
2: Yeah. You know? I, um, I, not to rub it in, but like, I, I'm also vaxxed and boosted, but I went to a 200 person wedding in Florida this past weekend and I did not get anything. I was yeah. like, that's, that's like the, f- I, I was like, that's the first time. First of all, in Florida, COVID doesn't really exist, as we know, like it's the wild west out there, <laughs> yeah. but um, we we had to go because it was like a really like close special friend. So it was it was fine and it was mostly outdoors. But yeah, you like forget, like how it is being in large crowds like that. It's crazy. And so far, no one has said that they've gotten anything. Maybe everybody already had it yeah. back there
1: it's crazy it's crazy i'm i'm really i've said this a thousand times i feel like but i'm really hoping this is that last push of uh infections and it's not going to have any place to go because all of us have had it or
2: yeah exactly like herd immunity i guess yeah you'd
1: hope so jerry you got anything
2: yeah i mean i'm i'm actually was gonna toast to my wife as well, who's also my producing partner, for um, sticking with me for the past three, four, or whatever years it's been, and um, actually helping in this final stretch to like also like double down on the edits. She's also editing, so it's like, yeah, we we sacrificed a lot of holidays and like being with people by just locking ourselves in our rooms and like just cranking out the movie to get it done. It's uh, so cheers cheers to yeah. her cheers to the wives
0: <laughs> hey guys th- thanks for making me look like an asshole and not toasting my wife appreciate that guys. we'll let you
2: go first and then we'll nice, uh um, nice work
0: yeah
2: hey i mean youtube is underrated i mean like i use it like for lunch you know whenever i eat by myself i'm like i'm just gonna go on youtube and watch like an episode of or like 10 minutes of some somebody ranting about something <laughs> oh,
1: it's so easy to get stuck on a on a hole of something. You know, you watch something and it's crazy. I'll
2: get, I get yeah.
1: distracted. I'll get thirty seconds into a video and then I see that bar on the side and I'm like, oh, but that might be more interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. Switch to Click something else. Yeah,
1: it, <laughs> it really is. All right, yeah. let's wrap this thing up. If you guys uh, took the time to watch or to listen, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Make sure you subscribe, share, like, rate all that good stuff also um go to jerry's uh social media pages look up at bottle condition film on what is it instagram facebook all that good stuff so you can follow all the news uh you know when it's coming out what's going on with it uh share that trailer i think that trailer is really powerful So uh, share that trailer out with your friends. I think it'd be uh, amazing. But Jerry, thank you so much for being with us and everybody that took the time to to hang out with us. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.